even in like the trailers for this movie, I think they gave that away. And I don't remember ever thinking, oh, Schwarzenegger must be the bad guy and then being surprised by it. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're going to be talking about the 1991 James Cameron film, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and I'm honored to welcome to the show, Josh Bell. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast. Thanks for having me. So it's people that don't know about uh, you know, about your, your writing and specifically your uh, podcast, Awesome Movie Year. Tell them a little bit about the concept behind that and uh, you know where they can find you. Yeah, Awesome Movie Year is a podcast that uh, I co-host with Jason Harris, who's a comedian and a filmmaker. Uh, we're both based here in Las Vegas. And what we do is in each season of the podcast – we take a look back at the films of a certain year. So uh, in our first season, we talked about the films of 1994, and we recently wrapped that up, and we've launched our second season talking about the films of 2007. So we have kind of different categories uh, that we take a look at for each year, like the biggest movie at the box office, the best picture winner at the Oscars, uh, things like that that are kind of determined for us. And then some other things that we pick out, a uh, notable documentary or foreign film or a future cult classic. So a mix of things that were uh, kind of notable during that year and then things that maybe we look back on as having uh, an impact on film history going forward. That's really cool. So are you – I know you just started the 2007 uh, season. Are you going to do the same categories that you did for 1994 or is it going to be a little bit of – uh, a little bit of a surprise as you go along. No, I mean, that's uh, th there'll be plenty of surprises, but, um, <laughs> you know, please listen. But uh, no, the idea is I think that we have those same categories pretty much for every year. So we use that as kind of a lens to look at the year. Um, so, yeah, again, the categories that we used in 94, we're going to look at uh, again for 2007. And that's our plan going forward for future years. Uh, there's some things like we've looked at film festival winners like Sundance and Cannes. And those aren't always necessarily Sundance, especially if you go back far and film history didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so we may make a few adjustments along the way. But for the most part, our plan is to kind of approach each year in the same way so that we can uh, kind of analyze each year from that same perspective and look right. at what it was then and how it's kind of impacted film uh, as it's gone forward. Right. More of an apples to apples comparison. So uh, this being 2019, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, at least on this podcast, there's been a lot of talk about that it's 20 years since 1999 and that being a pivotal year for for cinema. It's is there a, what was your thought process for selecting 1994 to start with, as opposed to, I guess, something more obvious like 1999? Well, I think the thought process was that 1999 was too obvious. Mm -hmm. And actually, exactly. when we were we were first discussing like launching this podcast, originally we talked about 1999, and I think because there is so much attention on it now, there is at least two other podcasts that are solely devoted to yep. the movies of 1999. So we felt like as we were starting out and we're new, and especially there's, I think The Ringer has a podcast about 1999, and that's obviously much more high profile, uh, that we wanted to go in a slightly different direction, uh, at least right now when there's so much attention on 1999. So for us, uh, I'm 39 and Jason is about the same age. And uh, so for us, 1994 was a year where we were teenagers. We were first kind of getting into film, getting excited about seeing interesting different kinds of movies, uh, for Jason especially, getting excited about maybe making movies. So it seemed like a good year for us that was kind of formative in our development as movie fans. And then it's also, I mean, as we say on the podcast, every year is an awesome year for movies. But for 94 especially, I think it's a year where there were a lot of movies that made a, a lasting impact and that people are still talking about. And it just happened, it kind of worked out well for us that we talked about things like The Lion King and Clerks and Pulp Fiction that ended up having a lot of resonance 
this year, whether it was because of the Lion King remake or Quentin Tarantino's new film or Kevin Smith's new uh, projects that he's working on. So uh, hopefully we can draw those connections and people will find that interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's 1984. I, I'm a little bit younger than you. I'm 36. So I was but still even that being the case, I was still old enough to be aware of everything that was happening in 1994. And, and, you know, I saw, I remember seeing the Lion King and the mask in, uh, in theaters. I remember when Pulp Fiction was out and not being allowed to go see it as an 11 year old, which is probably a smart, a smart move on my parents' part. Um, but yeah, I mean, even just looking at the, the layout of films that you've covered, like the, you, you know, that, that Oscar season specifically was so, is so colored by Forrest Gump versus Pulp Fiction. And then yet I feel like in a lot of ways, Shawshank Redemption, which you didn't even get a chance to cover. That's how much was going on in 1994. It is is still kind of uh, indoors in the same way. And it's just a really it's a really packed year of of populist hits. And then also kind of the emergence of of, uh, you know, the well, now it's more controversial. Now, you know, the Weinsteins and all that Um, with that whole like artistic, like, uh, you know, as far as you mentioned with Kevin Smith and and Quentin Tarantino and stuff. So it's, it's a really rich year. So I think that was a, that was a good call to, to go with 94. That's a lot of, a lot of stuff to choose from. And I'm, I'm really glad that you, you, uh, you guys talked about new nightmare. Cause I think that movie is, is severely underrated. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that was, we each had an episode where we just kind of picked our personal, not necessarily our personal favorite, but one movie that we really wanted to talk about. And that was my pick. And I'm a big horror fan. I'm a big Wes Craven fan and a nightmare on Elm street fan. And Jason is none of those things, my co-host. So we had an interesting kind of back and forth about that movie because uh, he was less into it than I was. <laughs> but of course, that makes for uh, hopefully an interesting podcast when we can have a bit of a debate back and forth about the merits of a movie. And we definitely talked a lot about what you were saying about the Pulp Fiction versus Forrest right. Gump kind of matchup that existed in that year. And we we considered doing an episode on Shawshank Uh, I think part of the thing that we're doing with this podcast is because we're limiting it to just a certain number and we only we only did 12 episodes for each year. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, we're going to have to leave stuff out. And I think that is almost part of the point, too. Like we're just giving you a snapshot of the year in a bunch of different areas. You know, we talked about like the Sundance winner for that year, for example, uh, which is a movie called What Happened Was by Tom Noonan that that very, very few people have seen. And we could have replaced that with a more well-known movie. But I think we wanted a range of things from obscure to super popular in order to give you a sense of the year. And so hopefully going forward, that'll be something that people find interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think and that's, that's part of why I love doing this show is that it's, you know, today we're talking about Terminator 2 Judgment Day. That's one of the, you know, most popular movies of all time in, in large regard and a huge like cultural touchstone. And then I've talked about, I talked about the, the station agent, a little tiny movie, you know, starring Peter Dinklage from 2003 and like sing street, which is I think kind of emerging cult status at some point, I hope uh, fingers crossed on that one. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's, that's always fun to, to get a chance to shine a light on films that listeners might not, you know, otherwise come across. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the station agent. I think that's a great movie. So I look forward to to hearing about that. And uh, Sing Street, also excellent. We uh, we have an episode coming up for Awesome Movie Year in our current season talking about Once, another John Carney oh, movie. Nice. So, yes. yeah, that should be, an, hopefully, again, interesting one for people to hear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So people definitely check out Awesome Movie Year if you're interested in uh, in listening about film, which obviously you're listening to this show, so let's hope so. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we're, this episode we're going to be talking about Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So without further ado, let's get to a little bit of the trailer right now. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> 29-year-old female diagnosed as acute schizoaffective disorder. She believes that a machine called a Terminator was sent back through time. The killer. My son, he's in great danger. Are you the legal guardian of John Connor? What's he done now? There was a guy here this morning looking for him, too. Yeah, a big guy on a bike. I wouldn't worry about him. Get down. (laughs) Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now, you reprogrammed me to be your protector here. 
he's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. T-1000, advanced prototype. Kill us all! with me if you want to live. We don't have much time. Excellent. It's definitely you. Hasta la vista, baby. That was a little bit of the trailer for Terminator 2 Judgment Day, directed by James Cameron. Uh, so this came out July 4th, the weekend, 1991. So, Josh, tell me, you know, what was your experience going to... I'm assuming you probably saw this in theaters when it came out. What, what was that experience like? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw this on July 4th weekend in 1991. I have this memory, and, you know, sometimes those are faulty. I would have been 11 years old. Um I have this memory of going to see it at like the mall movie theater with my dad and coming out of the movie and there being fireworks going off outside. Nice. Um, so I'm pretty sure if it wasn't actually on July 4th, it was it was on that general weekend when celebrations would have been going on. And I, I you know, I was just talking about the formative experience in like 94, being a teenager and seeing all these movies that that had a big impact on me. This was a few years earlier, but I feel like this movie just had a huge impact. This is the first movie that I can remember where I would have said, oh, that's my favorite movie ever. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was like 11 years old and probably hadn't seen that many movies, but I'd seen enough movies to know that I liked this one most of all. Um and, and I still love it. I think there are plenty of movies that I liked as a kid. And I, I, you know, you probably have the same experience where go back as an adult to see some movie that you loved as a kid and you think, what was wrong with me? <laughs> why, why did I love this movie? Um, but this is a movie that to me absolutely holds up. I've seen it many times. Uh, I just watched it recently, of course, so I could uh, talk about it here. And I just think it's one of the best action movies ever made. It's one of the best sequels ever made. Uh, it's one of the best sci-fi movies ever made. I think like everything about it just works incredibly well. And, you know, so 11 year old me had the right idea, uh, when I saw this movie and, and as, as much as I, I like the original Terminator and I'm sure I had seen it on home video or something before, uh, although my memories of it aren't nearly as strong, um, I just think this one is is superior and is just excellent in every way. Well, that's actually, you know, it's actually a good topic to touch on. Why? What about this movie specifically do you think makes it shine so much brighter than, uh, well, obviously than any of the sequels that have come after, which we'll probably talk about a little bit, uh, but, but uh, even brighter than the original? Uh, well, I think it's just so much deeper and more sophisticated. I mean, part of it is probably just a budget reason. You know, the yeah. original Terminator was not a huge budget movie. It was a B movie, really. Uh, and Cameron does a great job, I think, with the resources that he had at the time to make that first movie. I mean, it's I don't want to like disparage it. It's really good. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a little it's a little limited in scope and it works for what it is because it's almost like a horror movie where it's just about this one kind of unprepared woman who's being stalked by this unstoppable killer. You know, the Terminator in that original movie could be Michael Myers or something uh, with the way he just comes at her and will never give up and can never be destroyed. Um, but I think in T2, what Cameron does is he takes all that stuff that was set up in the first movie that he didn't necessarily think of as this broader mythology. And he builds on it so well so that every little element of that first movie kind of blossoms into this larger like tapestry of uh, storytelling. I mean, just little things like 
well, the Terminator got crushed. The original Terminator got crushed in this hydraulic press in a factory. Well, what would happen if parts of a machine from the future were found in this factory? Where mm-hmm. would they go? And what would someone do with them? Um, and and character-wise, too, Sarah Connor is not uh, really that fully realized a character in the first movie. Not that she's a bad character, but again, she's a very recognizable kind of horror movie archetype of the scared woman who's running for her life. Um, but you think about, okay, if you went through that traumatic experience, how would you respond to it? What would you do? And I think you can take it in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of horror sequels. I feel like the, the, where Sarah Connor ends up in this movie, that she's in this mental institution, there are many horror sequels where the final girl from the previous movie is now in a mental institution. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way he builds on that and how would she feel about her experience and what would she do having gone through that and knowing what she knows, like how would she live her life after that? I feel like he just does such a great job of thinking that through and getting every little piece in place. Um, And then he tells a great story, um, which is a similar story in some ways to the first movie. I mean, the idea of this killer machine coming back from the future to to kill you for something that you haven't done yet is scary, is a great story. So he tells that kind of story again and does a really good job of it. Um, and the special effects are amazing. You can't discount the effect of seeing that stuff on screen, which I think largely really holds up. Um, and acting is good. Um, it's, it's a long movie, but I think it's paced really well. Um, yeah, like I said, I just really like all the characters, I think it's an emotionally engaging film while also being like exciting and action oriented. It's got a lot of fun one liners. And to me, this is Cameron kind of at the height of what he does best. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think honestly, I think for my money, this is probably still Cameron's best film uh, just because of, of what you said, the way that he he builds off of the original Terminator, which had a budget of six point four million. And, you know, made 38 million domestically, which is good for 1984, but it wasn't like by any means like the the smash hit of the year that was obviously Ghostbusters and Gremlins and movies like that. Uh, so it wasn't quite at that level, but it, it basically, it, I feel like it's also kind of the, the progenity, like the, the prototypical film that did, did okay in theaters and then really blew up when it hit home video. And then that just, it, it got such a following that then, you know, he really made doing a sequel kind of a, a mission. And I think after proving, you know, his box office clout with aliens and kind of dipping into what would ultimately become the technology that he'd use for T-1000 with the abyss, you can really see his skill set this like developing from film to film. And I think you still see that now every movie he he's pushing technology further and he's like, okay, how can we do what we did before better and then add on to it. And I think this film in essence is a great example of that kind of applied to a narrative that, you know, as you said, it, there are elements of this movie that kind of feel like almost remaking the first one because it, again, is another killer robot sent back to kill a member of the Connor family. Uh, but it, it, it inverts your expectations too with the, the, uh, by having Arnold Schwarzenegger's character as the hero and, and it kind of flips, uh, flips what you, you know, the audience and Sarah are expecting on its head. And that, that, that great moment where they're both coming at her and she does, she's like, not sure which one to run to. Um, and, um, or is that, is that John? I think it might be John. Yeah. It's, uh, I think I, if you're thinking of the one, uh, in kind of in the mall yes, where, the hallway, uh, yeah. there, yeah, in the hallway there. And that is a great moment. And I mean, it's interesting. I I'm pretty sure. And I've seen articles about like the marketing for this movie, mm-hmm. the idea that it spoiled that twist, because mm-hmm. if you watched the first Terminator and knew nothing else, and then just watched this movie, of course, you think Schwarzenegger is the bad guy. Right. So that's such a great twist moment to, to discover that he's really the good guy. As a storytelling moment, if you if you remove it from spoilers or whatever, it is a really good inversion. And yeah, John, of course, and there's so much going on with John in that scene too, because not only is he not sure who the good guy is, but he's getting confirmation like in that moment that all the stuff that his mother told him is true, which of course he isn't, he doesn't really believe that even maybe if he says he believes it, he can't really truly believe it until he sees that. Um, But there is a great moment too later in the, in the mental institution when John and, and 
the Schwarzenegger Terminator come to rescue Sarah and and she sees Schwarzenegger coming around the corner. And of course, she also assumes that he's there to kill her. And she has Linda Hamilton is so good in this movie. She is. And she has this look on her face of just like oh, shit, everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And not just oh, shit, but just like everything that I ever feared in my whole life. The worst possible mm-hmm. thing that could happen to me is happening right now. Um, and that's just a great moment. Yeah, the fact that T-1000 disguises himself as a police officer, too, I think is really telling and, and just kind of furthers that uh, inversion of expectation. But yeah, it, it builds upon everything that's set up in the in that first movie. Uh, and Linda Hamilton, I mean, we should just take a moment since we're kind of already talking about her. It, you know, I think people forget how passive she is in that first one. I mean, she's just basically along for the ride until that final uh, the final act of the original film where she, you know, she actually is the one that, that kills the, destroys the Terminator. Uh, I think she just presses the button and like put, puts this in a press or something. Um, but yeah, so in this one, it's just such a 180 for her character. And I think, you know, I, James Cameron gets a lot of crap sometimes because he, he talks about like, Oh, Wonder Woman, she's not a real, you know, feminist hero. And thing. what did you, what do you kind of your take on, his version of what a on-screen hero is like i do you remember these comments he made about wonder woman and it's like she can't be a, a hero she's too beautiful or something like that i was it was a little convoluted but i feel like yeah. he, he thinks that he's the be all end all on female heroines and it's you know i mean it's kind of hard to argue against the guy that turned ripley and sarah connor into icons i mean granted ridley scott did with with Ripley and Alien, but Aliens is what really cemented her as an action hero. So what is kind of your, your take on all that? Yeah, well, I mean, Cameron, as much as I love this movie and I like a lot of his work, I mean, Cameron is a jackass, like as a person, and <laughs> right. I think that's fine. I mean, you know, that doesn't take anything away from the greatness of his movies. Exactly. Um, and so he's obviously completely wrong about Wonder Woman, and I love Wonder Woman. I think that's a really good movie, and Gal Gadot is great in that movie. And, of course, she is a strong female character and a feminist heroine and any of those things um, that you want to call her. Um, so Cameron is full of himself and is wrong about that, but he is absolutely like a pioneer in in creating these kinds of characters and bringing them to the screen. Uh, personally, I, I love Ripley as a character in all of the movies that she was in. Uh, I kind of prefer the original Alien over Cameron's Aliens, um, but he definitely brought her to that higher level and that allowed her to do the things that she does then in Alien 3 and in Alien Resurrection, which I also really like. And that's a whole separate topic, but I, <laughs> I, I love all the Alien movies. Um, well, when you, when, but, when you talk about 1997 on your podcast, you can go on a, a, a Josh's Choice uh, you know, defense of uh, Alien Resurrection. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure there's better choices. Not that not that it's the greatest movie ever. But I think I think what makes any of those movies good is is Ripley as a character and the way that she evolves and the way that Sigourney Weaver evolves her. But James Cameron was a big part of that because of what he did in that second movie. Um, So I I think he deserves credit for contributing a lot to to the depiction of female action heroes in big budget movies. Uh, sci-fi and action movies. I think he wants to give himself all the credit <laughs> and not give it to anyone else, which I think is unfair. And of yeah. course, in, in a way, in its own way, is anti-feminist because as much credit as Cameron deserves, you know, Sigourney Weaver and Linda Hamilton, and for that matter, matter, uh, Gail Ann Hurd, you know, yeah. they deserve just as much credit. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the transformation of Sarah Connor in this movie is phenomenal. Uh, the the commitment that Linda Hamilton has to that role, and not only in her physical transformation, but again in the emotional transformation, going from this scared, skittish person person to someone who has this kind of resolve to like a detrimental degree, you know, to the point where she kind of pushes her son away in some in some fashions and won't show him love because she is so determined to make him into this leader. Um, just every way that that character has developed, uh, she just does a fantastic job with all of it. Um, and I think this movie wouldn't work if you couldn't get emotionally engaged in Sarah, in her relationship with John, and even in her relationship with the Terminator. 
Um, and that is like the core as much as there's cool action and one liners and special effects. There's so much strong emotion in this movie. I think that really makes it work. Yeah, they basically turn. I mean, that's kind of the point of the movie is that the three of them turn into kind of a, a bizarre makeshift family. And, and I think that is that is such an important key that. Sarah went through this transformative experience of uh, falling in love while being hunted by a killer robot from the future and then surviving it with the knowledge that it's all going to, you know, time, the, the clock is ticking on humanity. And uh, he, Linda Hamilton does a great job of selling that that paranoia that like the, the, the effect that having basically having PTSD after going through something like that. But also the paranoia of, well, when is it going to happen? When is it going to, you know, it's just, you know, trying to, is there anything I can do to stop it? I have to protect my son and all that. And I think she does a tremendous job here of carrying the the heart of the film uh, in that way. I mean, you have sequences that are, you know, as memorable as not only the, 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 um, her mission to, to kill Miles Dyson, but also the nightmare sequence that's really burns it burns into your head as soon as you watch it because it's such a kind of horrific vision and and it realizes exactly what you were saying earlier but this is her worst fear and this is exactly what she's so uh frantic to try and, and prevent happening and i think it, it, the film lets you inside of her head in a way that most movies don't do with with their protagonists you know female or otherwise and and i think for this kind of movie it's it's easy to get lost in the spectacle of it. I mean, I think Terminator 3 is is a good example of a movie where the characters are just kind of there and then, you know, they're more they're more 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 focuses on uh that 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 chase with the, you know, with the truck and all that other stuff and the effects and the and the battle with the two terminators and and you know, not really focusing so much on making it feel real on a character level. Yeah, I think you're right and that action movies like this often don't give you that much insight into the emotions of the main characters, whether male or female. And that really understanding Sarah is something that sets this movie apart. And Cameron cares about her as a character uh, as much as he cares about the special effects. And I mean, I think part of the problem with later Cameron is that he obviously cares way more about special effects than about characters these days, but I think the balance in Terminator 2 is really is really strong, um, and uh, you you get to know uh, Sarah and all the characters. And you mentioned Miles Dyson. Miles Dyson is a great character mm-hmm. in this movie because he's he's so conflicted, and the idea that he's can you know he's confronted with this reality that everything that he's devoted his life to is going to literally destroy humanity. And he just kind of picks himself up and says, okay, here's the new plan. Here's what we're going to do, you know? And he sacrifices himself. He's sort of the tragic hero of this movie in a way. Uh, He is the one who gets killed. He's the one who has to, uh, you know, who has to sacrifice himself in order to save humanity. Without that, more than Sarah, more than John, uh, they would never be able to defeat Skynet. So, and I think Joe Morton is an underrated actor and uh, and does a really good job in this movie. Yeah, specifically, yeah, in, he's a, he's great in everything. I mean, I remember in the '90s, especially, he was in this movie. He was in Speed. He had like kind of a he was one of those that guys really heavily in the '90s, even more so. And uh, yeah, I, and what I love about that sequence too is not the fact that is one the fact that he's conflicted, the fact that he makes such an impression impression which with kind of minimal screen time, and the fact that. Once she explains everything to him, he's completely on board. He's like, once they convince him, he's like, well, we need to destroy this. Like Sarah just rushes into, like, she's so reactionary that she doesn't even realize, think about, well, maybe he would actually understand and be on my side. Maybe I don't have to murder him in order to stop him from doing this research. And it's sort of that, that callousness that she's developed since the first film of, well, I have to do whatever I can. And, and, you know, how that'll be, even if there's hell to pay, uh, to, to prevent judgment day. And I think that that's a, it's a great moment for her as a character to kind of realize that ironically, and that's again, kind of a major thematic thrust in the movie. She's, kind of lost a little bit of her humanity just as the Terminator is sort of finding its humanity at the same time. And so is that that really cool dichotomy that they're on sort of parallel tracks uh, and, you know, with John kind of being the fulcrum in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. And that she has kind of 
forced herself to become almost a Terminator-like machine and can't have these strong feelings because that's the only way she knows how to respond to what's happened to her. Um, but yeah, that that is great. And she has that moment. Of course, she breaks down. She ultimately can't follow through with killing Miles Dyson. And and that that shows just how much of a, a front that she's been putting up all this time again, because she she feels like that's the only way she can possibly react to things. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the idea that once he hears her, like she just tried to kill him. She just shot his house and and shot him, in fact, has injured him. And yet he's able to sit down calmly at a table and speak to her and say, okay, you're right. I'm going to now join you on this mission to destroy Cyberdyne. That that says a lot about him as a character. After this giant Austrian man comes into the house and like cuts his arm partially off. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be like, look, we're not messing with you. I got a metal, uh, metal endoskeleton. Um, so since we're kind of running through performances here, what do, what do you think about Edward Furlong as John Connor? Uh, I think he's, you know, obviously one of the weaker elements of the performance wise because he had never really acted before and child actors can be kind of hit and miss. What What is your, what do you think about his performance here and, uh, I obviously, you know, the fact that he was growing up on while this movie was happening, there was a lot of I'm, I don't know how much you know about behind the scenes of this movie, but there's a lot of like they had to like redub his voice after because it was breaking during the movie. And like he's like had a growth spurt during production. So they had to kind of uh, account for that. What do you you know, what do you think about him as John Connor? And then I guess in the pantheon of of John Connors that we've gotten since then, uh, which was Nick Stahl. Uh, Christian Bale, J- Jason Clark. I, if we're going to count that as John Connor, um, what are your what are your kind of what's your John ranking? I guess. Well, first of all, he's the best John Connor because all of those other ones are terrible. Um, <laughs> was, I mean, even that is thing. That's the correct answer. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't like him in this movie, he's clearly the best because the portrayals of John Connor in the other movies are bad. Yes. Um, and I I like him in this movie. I mean, yeah it's not as good a performance right. as any of the adult actors are giving. And it's not as good a performance as certainly there are, there are instances of child actors who come to their, you know, their first role at, at this age and are just fully formed and amazing. Uh, and that's not really the case here, but I think he does a pretty good job. And especially because John himself, the whole idea is that he's this kind of, he's kind of a dick. As you know, he's this kind of entitled, douchey little kid who resents that his mother has ruined his life by training him to be the leader of the future resistance. Yeah, no pressure, John. Right. And now he's confronted with, again, like I was saying before, he's confronted with the idea that, oh, shit, this all really is true. Mm -hmm. And now I have to somehow deal with it. And. So I think I think he does a good job of portraying that and and also the bond that he develops with the Terminator, you know, the idea that he has never had a father figure in his life and he latches on to this machine as the father figure and and he humanizes the Terminator in his own way. Uh, and, and he humanizes Sarah, too, because, again, she's made herself into this sort of cold, removed person and he is able to bring her back. Um, to having those emotions. So I, I think he does probably as well as can be expected. I, I mean, who's to say if they had cast someone else in this role, if it would have been better, I'm sure they auditioned, you know, hundreds of kids or whatever and found him. It is a little distracting with the overdubbing. You can tell mm-hmm. that a lot of those lines have been re redubbed and that's maybe a little, uh, a little distracting, but to me, it doesn't take away from the movie. I think he serves exactly the purpose that he needs to serve uh, in order to make this movie work. So let's talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I you know, this is still his big, biggest hit even now, like almost 30 years later. I still think that this is easily his best role just because it it plays off of the... You know, it plays off of the the uh, his kind of monotone monotone uh, delivery. It plays off of like his like his obviously his build and things like that. And it, and it, it feel like it's this. You know, there's a whole debate over whether or not Keanu Reeves is a good actor. And I think if you put him in the right role, it works. And for me, this is probably the best application that Arnold has ever played. Even when uh, when Cameron put him in True Lies, you're like, okay, spy, yeah. 
but this guy is pretending to be a computer salesman and nobody thinks that there's anything weird about that. Um, you know, certain, certain roles, it's, uh, it doesn't fit him ju- quite as well. Do you agree that this is probably Schwarzenegger's best, I mean, not only his most famous role, but probably the, the best performances that he's given? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd have to go look through because he's been obviously in a like a lot of movies and, he's and some smaller like dramatic things le- lately. I mean, I know he did that uh, Maggie a few years ago that was sort of a like uh, horror drama. And he's done some other things that I, I think even I haven't seen. But but yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen Maggie and he did another movie and now it's called Aftermath, I want to say. Uh, that was a very, I mean, Maggie at least is kind of a genre thing and it has zombies in it. But, um, that other movie is a straight drama where he plays this guy who, uh, his family was killed in a plane crash that was, uh, based on, a the, um, uh, air traffic controllers error and he's dealing with grief and his feelings of resentment at this air traffic controller. And it's a straight drama. And yeah, I think in those movies, He's just not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right that he, like Keanu Reeves, is really good within his very, very limited range. Yeah. And if you cast him in the right role, he can hit it out of the park. And and I think it's possible, again, I'd have to look at every the f- full list to remember. I think it's possible there are other movies like that where he had the right part and he did a really good job. But I, 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 would, I would absolutely believe that this is his best role. And he is very good as this character. He's able to go beyond that monotone just enough that you get a little bit of the humor and a little bit of the emotion. But because he's still a robot, he doesn't have to go too far exactly. beyond it. So it doesn't it doesn't challenge Schwarzenegger too much. It's a, kind of a backhanded compliment, I guess. You're like, you're great at playing a, a robot mostly devoid of human emotion. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm like, Schwarzenegger is not a great actor. And I, I feel like I'm fine with saying that. Right. Um, but I think like Edward Furlong, he does exactly what this movie needs. He gives exactly the right performance for this character in this movie. And he helps with the emotion. I mean, Linda Hamilton really carries the emotion of this movie. But Schwarzenegger helps with it. He gives you something. Um, so I like his performance in this film. Um it's more of a performance. I mean, in the first movie, he barely has any lines and he's just kind of like stalking and looking grim and there's not much of a performance there, although it it takes some skill to do that. Um, This movie is far more of a a performance and, and I think it's a really good one. And I think all of the, all of the acting is balanced really well. He gives what he needs and Linda Hamilton and Edward Furlong give that emotional part, part, part of it. And Robert Patrick gives you the just, menacing villain my next Joe topic Gordon. i was shifting yeah. right over to robert patrick next yeah. i mean they're all good they're all good yeah robert patrick is i mean this was a star making role for him i mean he this was his breakthrough in a lot of ways and he's still known for this movie specifically having even having been on x files and like a million other things since then and he's become more much more of a character actor but uh, yeah he really sells the uh, the kind of steely demeanor of the t1000 uh, I know he I think he did some training as far as to be able to run like that without, you know, showing any signs of fatigue and just uh, I, I don't know. He he really he is still probably one of my favorite um, movie ba- villains of all time and is also really the conduit of all of the CG. I mean, this was a huge, as you know, this was a huge breakthrough for computer generated imagery. Uh, this uh, apparently, according to my research, first use of a natural human motion for, for a CG character and the first like partially CG main character won Oscars for visual effects and all this. And uh, of course the sound and uh, sound editing and things like that makeup. So, I mean, let's talk about the effects in this movie and how this is one of those rare examples of an action film from the 90s that still holds up. I mean, I'm thinking this Jurassic Park, especially from the early 90s, there's not there's not that many that really that really still still don't really. I mean, I, I it's still if I watch this now, it doesn't. There are very there are like almost zero cringe moments in the in the movie here, as far as the visuals are concerned. The original had a smaller budget, so there's still like you know there's that weird rubber Terminator head. Uh, in that one scene in the first one, um, when he's stripped down to the endoskeleton, it's obviously very stop motiony. But in this one, it's it's pretty flawless. Let's so let's talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, it is. The effects are great. I think they do really hold up. And you mentioned Jurassic Park, which I think is uh, absolutely on par with this, that those are both movies that you can watch now and the effects are almost completely seamless. And it's weird to me to watch a movie that was made that long ago and think the effects in this movie look better Mm -hmm. than effects in movies now in some ways. And I think part of the reason is that because these effects were so new and were so expensive that they could only use them very sparingly. You know, Cameron had to really think about what moments are there when I can use these effects. I mean, there's still moments in this movie where instead of seeing the T-1000 morph, he cuts away Mm -hmm. and then cuts back so that he doesn't have to show it. Um, And I think as these effects become more prevalent and they become easier to use and less expensive, people rely on them way more. Um, And so it becomes less special and they just kind of throw it in whenever and they don't think about it as much. And so I think that's part of the reason why this holds up is because every effects moment in this movie had to be considered very carefully and used in exactly the right way. Um, And yeah, I think it all looks great. And I think even opposed, again, talking again about Cameron and his obsession with technology, I haven't watched Avatar in a while, but I wouldn't be surprised if Avatar holds up less than Terminator 2 does. 100%. I completely agree with you. And it should be noted, this was the most expensive movie ever made up to this point, which is not, you know, obviously not the first time we could say that about a, about a James Cameron movie. Titanic was like only a few years later. But um, but yeah, it is because of what you said. It is because he was very calculating about when he needed to use the CG and trying to find practical ways around things. Um, I mean... For example, the Linda Hamilton Linda Hamilton thing, her twin was actually a part of this movie. A lot of people know that now, but at the time, we didn't realize. We were like, oh my God, look how they duplicate Linda Hamilton. Um, or the deleted scene with the uh, sort of the Terminator brain surgery where you see Linda Hamilton in the, her reflection on in the mirror, but it's actually, you know, her sister is in that scene as well. Things like that, that are, the, the, he finds creative ways around the technology and only impl- implements it when he when he definitely needs to and, and you know i think there's there's a uh, there's a, a benefit to that not only aesthetically but also just you know narratively showing the the t1000 morph off screen and then cuts back and he's fully formed that also creates a sort of a, a sense of suspense that you don't get if you just show everything in camera you know yeah absolutely i agree with that 100% Uh, I think, unfortunately, that maybe is something that Cameron has lost. Mm -hmm. I think Cameron is not the only one who's lost it. Again, I think any action big budget type filmmaker now has so many resources at their disposal that they don't think about these things as much. Um, But, yeah, I think that's great. The the, um, the security guard in the mental institution also who gets duplicated. I think that's another twin where the actor was was playing opposite his own his own twin brother. Um, yeah, I don't know what I was like. The, the effects are great and they serve the story perfectly. Um, and and I, I, I think to me also, I remember being, you know, being 11 years old or whatever. And, and even as years went by and I got more into films and I saw more movies, I would always say, oh, James Cameron is like my favorite filmmaker. Not only is this my favorite film, but he's my favorite director because he is so good at balancing all these things. And I, I think he really just kind of lost that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not looking forward to Avatar's, you know, two two through five or whatever he's working on now. Because um, I think like, you know, you could you could talk about Robert Zemeckis and, and George Lucas and, and Ang Lee, you know, we've got Gemini Man about to come out. These filmmakers who get so into the idea of technology that they lose sight of like story and character. I mean, absolutely. Ang Lee's whole thing is the high frame rate that he's obsessed with. And everybody's right. like, okay, that's great. <laughs> so make, make a movie as good as Brokeback or Crouching Tiger again, because it's been a long time. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. And uh, there is a certain point where, I mean, I still don't think Cameron's made, ever really, really made a bad film. But I agree with you that I don't know why. I think James Cameron is the only person that's really excited about more Avatar movies at this point. That movie was from a script level, but pretty kind of, you know, mediocre. It's pretty much just the effects and really Zoe Saldana's performance that sell, that make that have any kind of impact at all. And I think, it, you know, we're now over a decade later. 
I'm sure it'll come, you know, I'm probably going to eat my words in a couple years. It'll come out and be like, it's amazing. But as of now, it's like, I doesn't, I don't really feel like there's any hype for that. And it's, it's uh, in a way kind of disappointing that he's squandering his, you know, his filmmaking talent on one franchise and just beating it into the ground uh, amid basically no, you know, no fan clamoring for that. Uh, so, I mean, this is kind of a good, a good segue into the Terminator franchise, what are overall your thoughts on uh, on everything that came after this? Um, have you ever have you ever been on the uh, Terminator Two 3D ride that used to be at Universal? And uh, and you know what do you want to see in uh, Terminator Dark Fate? We're recording this obviously before that film has come out, before we've seen that. So just general Terminator franchise thoughts. Uh, well, I have not been on the Terminator ride at Universal Studios, so I cannot speak to that. But um, I have seen the other Terminator films, of course. Um, I kind of have a soft spot for Terminator 3. I think it's obviously nowhere near as good as Mm -hmm. those first two movies. But if you look at it as just a fun action spectacle, I think it's still fairly entertaining. Uh, Schwarzenegger still is having a good time as the Terminator. Uh, I like Kristana Loken as the, what is it, the TX or whatever the, the new generation Terminator is. I thought she did a good job. That was kind of her biggest moment in the spotlight. Um, and, and Nick Stahl is, you know, it's not that he's that bad as John Connor. I think they just don't know how to characterize John Connor. You know, I he's, think that's a big... He's sorry, kind of a nothing character, I was going to say, in that movie. He's just kind of there, which is disappointing considering he's supposed to be the future of the human resistance. And he's just, yeah, he's just super vanilla and doesn't it doesn't feel developed at all. I agree with you. Yeah, that. yeah. And I think that's part of the problem is that later uh, filmmakers haven't been able to kind of conceptualize John Connor beyond a symbol. And I think what's really good about... Terminator 2 is that the whole character of John Connor is about him himself grappling with the idea that he's supposed to be a symbol. Um, and I think maybe that they just kind of didn't understand that in the later movies. So, so yeah, I kind of liked is I still kind of like T3. It has a great ending. I mean, that super, super bleak ending mm-hmm. um, where, I, I, you know, in such contrast, as, as much as I like the ending of T2 and, and, and Linda Hamilton's narration about the open road and, and hope for the future, um, I still am kind of a sucker for an ending where it's like, oh, all of humanity is dead. Um, <laughs> yeah. I kind of like that about it. Um, but yeah, and I mean, Term- Terminator's salvation is terrible. And and Christian Bale is bad in that movie, who is, I mean, you know, one of our great actors. And he's just so wrong for well, for for John Connor. Well, we, um, we know we know thanks to that uh, that leaked audio that he was not happy to be in the movie either. And after, after seeing the movie, you kind of understand why he reacted that way on set. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of issues with that movie and. Uh, and yeah, and, and Terminator Genesis too. I think starts out promisingly the idea of uh, redoing aspects of the original and changing it up. I thought was smart, and then it just completely goes off the rails. And the John Connor in that movie is also terrible, and it's so confusing. And I don't know if I could even make sense of it now. What's supposed to be happening in that movie? Um, and I mean, Schwarzenegger is obviously having a good time whenever he can return to this character. And I think that comes through even in Genesis where it's totally muddled. Um, but I think there's not a whole lot going on in those movies, even in Terminator 3, that's worth it. I think I would have been much happier if they just stopped here. Um, but of course, that's never going to happen. And I mean, I kind of feel that way about Dark Fate, too. Obviously, I haven't seen it yet. All I've seen are trailers. But nothing in those trailers makes me think that this is going to be the one that gets it right. It doesn't look any better than Genesis. I mean, yeah, I, I, I the fact that James Cameron is involved after he was, you know, out there shilling for Genesis, being like, oh, this is the the the, the third chapter that I would have made or whatever they had him out there saying. Uh, it doesn't doesn't give me a lot of faith in this one. I am at least a little encouraged that Linda Hamilton is back finally in this role. I, you know, that's probably going to be, but I have a feeling that I could easily walk out of that saying that the movie was 
not very good, but at least Linda Hamilton was in it. <laughs> so uh, I hope that's not the only thing it has going for it. But I, I, largely, I agree with what you, your takes on uh, on the other three. The only main reason I mentioned the Universal ride, the Terminator 2 3D Battle Across Time, is because it does have Edward Furlong. And like it basically, it's the only continuation that we've gotten thus far with the four people from this movie, the four main cast members all involved in it. Um, Terminator 3 is fine. I think it is kind of perfunctory overall. Uh, and it, you know, especially since the Terminator, it's another Terminator showing up and this time's after John's wife instead of John, instead of his mom. It's just like, we're going to do this again. Like even the beginning with the way the Terminator comes, uh, lands and then puts the sunglasses on parodying the, the scene from Terminator 2. Uh, so, but I, I think the ending largely saves it. And there's that great sequence that I mentioned earlier with the truck, the big like chase sequence, uh, Salvation, I think I saw it and fell asleep in theaters and, and never really went back to revisit it because it was pretty boring. Uh, and then Genesis, I think, yeah. The, like, the first half of it is interesting, even though Jai Courtney is terribly miscast as Kyle Reese. Uh, but but at least they were trying something different, so I give them credit for that. Uh, but, but overall, I'm very nervous about Dark Fate, and I'm hoping that it's going to be good, but... At least if it's not, you know, we can we can just ignore it like we did like the last couple sequels. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I we just spent all this time praising Linda Hamilton and, and that's great that she's back. There's nothing in those trailers that makes me think it's going to be a really interesting, interesting portrayal mm-hmm. of Sarah Connor. But sure, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to I'll try to be open minded about it. Um I just it, I have a hard time. And like you were saying about Cameron, the idea that he said, oh, Genesis was the one and that didn't work out. And now he's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is the one. This is the real sequel. Um, and, and and like we were saying about Avatar and everything, like I'm not sure I trust Cameron on anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so having him be involved in this movie isn't necessarily uh, a plus. But uh, I also have a general pet peeve of this trend where, oh, now we're making the real sequel to this mm-hmm. thing. We're going to ignore all previous sequels. And come on, just just suck it up. Like, take the challenge of making an actual sequel rather than ignoring all those other ones. You know, take what you can from them and make it work. Um, I don't know. That's that's a that's a separate issue. But to me, I don't get excited by that idea. Like, oh, this is the real one. Now it's time to see. Like, no, it well, just Halloween, it just makes the filmmakers seem lazy. Halloween being the most, I guess, the most high profile, one of the most high profile examples of that up to this point. That uh, that now apparently it's undoing like what thirty something years of film, <laughs> just pretending that none of it happened just so they can get Jamie Lee Curtis back, pretty, pretty much. Uh, but yeah, I yeah, I don't I don't. I mean, I, I'm, I'm of two minds about that. One, I think it's kind of in a way disrespectful to the, the you know, franchise fans of whatever franchise they're, they're making a, a follow-up to. But at the same time, it does give, it, it loosens up the, cre- the options creatively and what they could do as far as, you know, to undo some of the missteps of the past. So I, I don't know. I just, it does feel like that's starting to now already to be a crutch that, that we're going to see way more of than we probably should. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, they already announced like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, the next one being oh, yeah, the direct right. sequel, which which has already been done like twice in that franchise anyway. Um, so maybe this is a horror movie thing and I'm a big horror fan, so I, I, I see it more often. But um, yeah, I mean, creative freedom is good, but I, I don't feel like anyone is doing this in order to really become creatively free. Right. I think they're doing it so that they can even more like imitate the movie that people liked. Like, oh, now we can, you know, everyone liked it when Jamie Lee Curtis was in the Halloween movie. So if we do this, we can bring her back. Everyone liked it when Linda Hamilton was in the Terminator movies. If we do this, we can bring her back. Right. Um, So I I don't know if it's uh, I I don't know that it's a sign of allowing filmmakers more freedom. I think it's a sign of uh, needing something to goose the box office or I I, I don't know. It just. uh, it bugs me. I'm not not that the middle Terminator movies are that good, obviously, or that we need to like honor them or whatever. I kind of felt like it was a shame with Halloween because they had uh, they really shit on Daniel Harris there, who did a great job in like uh, I think it's Halloween four and Halloween five, um, and then they just erase her from continuity. But that's a that's a separate issue. <laughs> well, it's also like this movie ends 
sort of quasi happily, but but with you know with enough wiggle room for Judgment Day, I, I presumably to get I guess kicked further down the timeline. Uh, did you have you seen the uh, extended edition with the that terrible happy ending with the uh, Linda Hamilton and old age makeup and all of that? I have. I didn't. I didn't watch it this time around. Um, I mean, I have like a Blu-ray that has both versions, right. and I felt like the the purity of the original version was the right way to go. I have seen that ending at some point in the past, and I, I feel like this movie works exactly right the way that it is. Yeah. And that ending is happy enough that. Even though, yeah, there's the possibility. What's happy about that ending, I think, almost is the possibility of Judgment Day because the ending there is not that everything is always going to be great forever. The ending there is that humanity is now free to make its own fate. And that's what's important. So, uh, yeah, I think that works well. And again, as much as I, I kind of uh, admire the ending of Terminator 3, I don't think I would have wanted this movie to end with you know, the failure and Skynet comes online and, and judgment day happens anyway. I don't think that's the right way to go for this one. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And this, this, this the movie mentioned, you know, brings up a lot of great moral questions. We talked about Sarah's quest with Miles Dyson. And then, uh, I think the, the comment on humanity and us kind of being our own downfall, that's really a, a fundamental part of kind of all sci-fi really, if you think about it. And I think it, it, this, the film ends with, uh, just just enough hope to to wrap this story up in a way that doesn't feel too neat but also doesn't have that like downbeat ending that they really went for in Terminator 3 like you mentioned so props to props to uh I guess Jonathan Mostow for for uh going with that that route with the third ending because I if you're going to do it that's the way to do it um so so yeah so I really liked I really love that uh let's see I want to mention the the score by Brad Fidel, how just, you know, you have those, those, uh, metallic and I'm yeah, hoping that's... that they bring that theme back for a dark fate. I'm assuming that they are, it looks like it is in the marketing. So go ahead. What were you going to say about it? No, I was just going to agree that that music is great and it's iconic. It's I, to me, it's up there with like anything John Williams has done and you know, the theme songs from like Halloween and Friday the 13th and things like that, or, or psycho Jaws or where you hear it, it like two seconds of it and you just are instantly transported. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course this movie spawned a ton of catchphrases. Come with me if you want to live. Hasta la vista baby and all that good stuff. And, of, and has an ending that makes pretty much every grown man cry <laughs> with the, the <laughs> I understand now why you cry, but it's something I can never do with the thumbs up going into this, into the, uh, you know, into the, the foundry or whatever that is. I, I thought that was great. And I, I love the closing line. Since we're talking about the ending so much, I love the closing line that Sarah ends it on. And uh, she says, the unknown future rolls toward us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope because of a machine, a Terminator can learn the value of human life. Maybe we can too. I love that. That's such a perfect note to end the movie on. And, uh, you know, what is, you know, we kind of talked about the ending, but any, any further thoughts on the ending? Just because it is essentially a perfect movie ending for for this uh, for this genre, for this story that has been told, that you, you feel sort of... Uh, I don't know. You feel like they're uplifted by it in kind of a weird way. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, like I said, what's great about it is that it's hopeful, but it's not it doesn't feel fake. I think that that alternate ending would almost undermine it, because if like everything is so great, you assume that like, oh, well, they're just delusional and things are going to fall apart. But ending it on a note of like, well, maybe things will work out, I think gives you a lot of hope. Uh, which is which is nice to have. And, and it ties in with all the themes of the movie about learning to appreciate humanity and the connections that people have with each other. And yeah, maybe we'll still screw it up and we'll still kill each other, but at least now we have a chance. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's great. The voiceover, Linda Hamilton, I mean, throughout the movie, the the kind of musings that she has on, on human nature, I think fit really well. And they're, they're maybe cheesy at times, but I think they, they work in the context of what the movie's trying to do. Absolutely. Um, I don't really have a whole lot else in my notes. Is there anything specifically about Terminator 2 Judgment Day that we haven't talked about thus far that you want to make sure that we cover? I don't think so. I mean, I think we covered all the really good performances, the effects, uh, the writing. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I feel like this is pretty much the perfect movie or at least the perfect blockbuster movie um 
And I, and I think we pretty much talked about, you know what, the one thing that I'll mention is uh, Earl Bowen as Dr. Silberman. And uh, Screen Crush recently had a great article, like, in appreciation of Dr. Silberman, who is, who is other than Arnold Schwarzenegger, the only actor to appear in all of the first three Terminator movies. That's true. Um because he's in Terminator 3 as well. And, and I, he's just a great background character. And the way that he has such contempt for Sarah Connor. And, you know, and his world is also shattered there. Because he's the only person who witnessed the Terminator, the original Terminator in 1984. And then sees the Terminator again. Um, so he's just, I, this movie is full of, of, of great little moments. And I think he uh, is maybe an unsung element uh, of this franchise. So that is the last thing that I will add. <laughs> now, I agree with you. I think he's he's basically kind of the stand in for the rest of humanity. I think kind of just tracking the the uh, the, the story from an everyman's perspective, uh, just kind of, you know, the disbelief of what happened in the first one. And then the second one with the when the, the cigarette, I think he has a cigarette in his mouth that he drops when yeah. he sees the Terminator go through the, the T-1000 go through the bars, all of that right. stuff. I think, it, yeah, he adds a lot to it with, again, very little screen, especially in the third one. I think it's just basically a cameo. Uh, and right. it, it, it does serve that purpose of here's what an outsider's perspective looks like to this crazy, like, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic mess that's happening all around us. Yeah. Great. Awesome. So, Josh, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on social media uh, at Josh L. Hates Everything on Facebook. You can find me at Signal Bleed on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on my website at joshbellhateseverything.com. And if you want to listen to Awesome Movie Year, you can go to awesomemovieyear.com. Uh, follow us at uh, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook. And, uh, you know, search for Awesome Movie or wherever you like to podcasts. Awesome. Well, Josh Bell, this has been a, this has been a lot of fun. It's a good, nice refresher for me as far as uh, with the with Terminator franchise, where I guess we left it off now with Dark Fate. Uh, the last because the last three movies didn't count. So. Um, so, yeah, this was a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. And I would love to have you back at some point down the line. Talk about something else. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to coming back. Awesome. Thanks, man. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.